Hello and welcome to Rethink Luxury. I'm your host, Julia Raymond Hare, and you're listening to the third episode of our special luxury series. Each episode dives into a different topic within luxury retail, and today we'll be taking a deeper look at the APAC region with a particular focus on China and its impact on the global luxury market. Over the past decade, the Chinese consumer has taken the lead in luxury shopping, and if you've been keeping up with headlines, you already know China is expected to account for half of the world's luxury market by 2025. Wow, amassing half the world's anything is undoubtedly a massive feat by any standard, and we want to know what's fueling China and the rest of Asia-Pacific's insatiable appetite for luxury goods. But first, I'd love to know what you think of the show. I always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please don't hesitate to connect with me on Twitter at Julia R. Hare, that's H-A-R-E, or on LinkedIn. You can search my name, Julia Raymond. If you're interested in media or sponsorship opportunities, you can reach our team by emailing media at rethink.industries, or if it's easier to remember, media at rethinkretail.org. This series is made possible by our incredible sponsor, Valtech. Valtech is a global agency serving the world's leading luxury brands in digital and retail, including perhaps the most prestigious Louis Vuitton. As a precursor to this series, Valtech published its paper called Luxury Meets the Modern Era Insights for 2021 and Beyond. This paper was written by four experts who work closely with Valtech's globally renowned luxury clients, and we've linked to the paper from our website, rethink.industries or rethinkretail.org. You'll see a banner on the homepage linking to the paper. You can also find it listed in our resources section. Joining us today are guests Erwan Rambo, Matteo De Rosa, and Rethink Retail's new representative for China, Joyce Dang. Up first, we'll hear from China luxury marketing expert and equity analyst Erwan Rambel. Erwan is also the author of the best-selling book, The Bling Dynasty. His recent book, Future Lux, is now available wherever books are sold, so be sure to check it out. I actually purchased this book myself and read it. It was excellent. Highly recommend. Hi, this is Erwan Rambo. I'm the author of Future Lux. I've been involved in the luxury sector for the past 25 years, initially as a marketing manager and more recently as an equity analyst. Great to be with you today. Thank you for joining us, Erwan. So I'll jump right into it. While a good portion of Western thought regarding the luxury industry in the times of COVID has been more doom than gloom, you've expressed great optimism for tomorrow's luxury consumer, particularly when it comes to consumers in the APAC region. Can you tell us why? I think the timing post-COVID is quite interesting because there's a lot of stress going on. This is a, a bit of an unprecedented crisis. And I think you'll find a lot of observers in the luxury sector not being too confident about the long term. And my book is very confident about the next 10 years. And it's essentially down to three cohorts of consumers. First of all, the female consumer. I put in the book that the future is female. I got pushback on that with people saying, well, the past and the present are female as well. And that's true. But what I meant by the future is female is you have womenomics at play. If I can use a Japanese connoted term, you will have salary gaps reducing. You will have participation rates to employment going higher for women. You have people getting married at a later stage, getting fewer kids, or if they do get kids at a later stage as well. And so women are on the cusp of 
spending significantly more. So the first reason to be optimistic is the female consumer. The second reason to be optimistic is the Asian consumer. If you look at the next billion people entering the middle class, 88% of those will be Asian. And obviously a lot will be from mainland China. So I think there's still a lot of recruitment to be going on. The Chinese theme has been quite dominant in the luxury space for the past 10 years. I argue it's still going to be dominant for the next 10 years. And you'll have a lot of new entrants that brands can, can sell to. And the third cohort is youth. This is partly related, actually, to Asian development, but it's also true in the U.S. People tend to buy luxury at a pretty young age. It's about fitting in. It's about being recognized by peers. And it might sound a bit counterintuitive, but luxury with this so-called selfie generation or Gen Z or however you want to name them is very important. You know, the perception of who you are to be accepted as part of the club by peers, coworkers, family members, et cetera, is quite paramount. And so the combination of female consumers, Asian consumers, young consumers will, I think, fuel a lot of growth, but will also put some pressure because especially with younger consumers, many questions will be asked to luxury brands that they haven't been accustomed to hearing. And so they'll have to adapt to be able to answer those questions. So you said there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic with some drivers related to demographics, namely the female, the Asian, and the younger consumers. And the statistic you shared blew my mind. You said 88% of the next billion consumers entering the middle class will be Asian. Billion is such a huge number to even conceptualize. How would you describe the impact of this growth? So I would say, I mean, to put things more precisely, if you look at the target market of some luxury brands in China, it's probably 15 to 20 million people only, if I could say. And if you look at the next five years, that 15 to 20 will likely double. So again, it's not necessarily about making consumers loyal. Obviously, it's better if you can, or about trading up necessarily. It's about being set up to be able to welcome more consumers to your brand. It's really almost about pure recruitment still in mainland China. And when you say pure recruitment, that's about capitalizing on the new entrance to the luxury market. Yeah, it's recruitment by opposition to repeat purchases. So again, the, the main driver of growth is your capacity to welcome new entrants. So first-time purchasers, people who are in the market of my first branded handbag, my first branded watch, my first branded piece of jewelry. And that is still quite dominant today. You know, even globally, most of the luxury brands that I look at will generate more than half of their sales with people who are buying that brand for the first time ever. It sounds crazy, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound crazy. So I think you still have a lot of potential for the industry to welcome more people. You mentioned that the ability to welcome first-time purchasers is the main driver of growth. So would you say, based on your experience working as an executive in the luxury industry, but also as an analyst, that it's difficult for luxury brands to really attract those first-time buyers? What are some of the challenges you've seen? So I think the main challenge when you're dealing with a recruitment market is essentially scale and your capacity to have a voice and to basically drown the voices around you. It's a very competitive space. You know, if you're looking for a branded handbag or footwear or ready to wear, you have 60, 70, 80 brands to choose from. The issue is when you are in the market of my first branded handbag, well, scale matters because you'll have a handful of brands dominating the airwaves, you know, dominating the blogs and forums, dominating advertising. Again, if you look at scale and you're in the market of my first branded handbag in the luxury field, you'll be probably looking at the top three, the top three being Louis Vuitton, 
Gucci and Chanel. If you have more means, you might be looking at Hermès. If you're edgier, you might be looking at Christian Dior or Prada. But really, it's a handful of brands. You know, a second tier brand will not cut it as your first purchase because, again, you're, you are purchasing to fit in. You are purchasing for peers to understand that you're worthy of doing business with or you're worthy of a promotion. You know, it's all about what the Chinese call guanji, so relationship building. If your first branded handbag is a brand that no one knows, it defeats the purpose somewhat. So I think the challenge is really one of scale. Part of the reason you've seen a lot of M&A, a lot of consolidation in the luxury sector over the past 10 years, it's probably the reason why I'm optimistic as well, that you'll see an acceleration of M&A and consolidation once we get out of this COVID-19 mess. Absolutely. And when you say a little bit, when you talk about the Asian consumer and about fitting in, you said this was important to the U.S. consumer, but also the Chinese consumers and maybe more so for the latter. How is the Chinese consumer different from maybe the European or the North American consumer? What are key differences culturally or otherwise? Yeah, so I would say um, there are psychological differences. There are age differences. There are expectations that differ in terms of psychology in the very short term you'll meet a lot of Chinese consumers who will tell you that COVID-19 is yesterday's story. You know, I don't think you'll meet a lot of French or British or Italian or American consumers sharing that view. You know, we're still trying to live with this. Whereas in China, things have opened up pretty quickly. And as of April or May, you've seen a, a pretty decent rebound and consumers on the higher end displaying a lot of confidence. Another big difference I would say is in terms of the age, the average age of consumption for luxury in China is very low. It's essentially a young female professional in her 20s. I think if you look to Europe, she'll probably be eight or 10 years older. And if you move to the States, she'll be older still. So it's a slightly different demographic. Linked to psychological elements and linked to age, I think there's a level of confidence today that will tell you that Chinese consumers are ready for bolder propositions, for more colorful products, for a greater logo content as well. So, you know, I'm not thinking that the U.S. is particularly understated, despite everything that's happening. I think, uh, you know, many brands are pointing to the fact that so-called signature products, so products that have a logo content, are actually outperforming. Again, a bit counterintuitively in the U.S. today versus six months ago. But, you know, the product assortment of what is being sold in China will come across as being bolder. And you did mention that Chinese consumers might say COVID-19 is yesterday's story compared to other consumers elsewhere in the world. And earlier in our conversation, you also mentioned that you foresee a lot of M&A in luxury. So how would you say that will play out in terms of physical stores? Yeah. So I think, again, because you're looking at a market which is essentially about recruitment, I think physical stores have a great future in luxury. Unlike maybe some cosmetics companies or some sporting goods companies like Nike, who will tell you that eventually more than half of their business will be online, I believe that will happen for those. For luxury, it's going to take a lot longer. One of the companies that I look at is Montclair, the down jacket company based in Milan. They recently guided that online sales were about 10% of total sales a year ago, and that should go to 20% over the next three years. That's ballpark reasonable for me. I don't think it will go way beyond because, again, your first experience as a first-time purchaser will probably be in a brick-and-mortar store with a sales associate, you touching and feeling the product and getting the story directly from her. 
or from him, rather than you know having to go online and make a few clicks and get the product delivered to your home. That's not great in terms of storytelling. So I think stores have a great future. Obviously, the stores need to evolve. The stores need to be exciting, inviting, surprising. It can't be a sort of cookie cutter approach that you had in China about 10 years ago when a brand would open a flagship in Shanghai. And if that worked out, they would open 40 times the same store. There is an issue with that in terms of what the Americans call déjà vu. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So you don't want to go through that impression that you've seen it before. Every time you walk into a store, it has to feel different. It has to feel unique. It has to feel bespoke. And so I think a lot of brands have started on that journey of working with different artists for the artwork within the store, working on specific assortments to have that differentiation either by city or by neighborhood even. And so I think you need, you know, the younger, there's a horrible word, which is retailtainment, which is this idea (laughs) that, you know, I need as a young luxury consumer to be surprised and delighted. And the reality is now the brands need to step up. And they've done so with pop-up stores, which have that possibility of surprising you and putting a smile on your face. But they need to do it also with the more permanent stores that they have in their fleet. Final question, Erwan. How do luxury players get exposure in China if they don't already have it? I think there's a need for speed. You know, If you are a luxury company and you have a limited exposure to China, I think it's now or never, right? Because, uh, again, things are evolving very quickly and you are facing groups that have leverage. Leverage, as I said, in terms of a voice, but leverage also in terms of real estate. If you are a shopping mall ramping up in China, you basically need the two or three multi-brand groups to participate in your mall. And then you have a few nice-to-haves and then that's all you need, right? So if you're an independent company trying to get exposure to China, I think it's almost too late. You either speed up very rapidly now or you've missed the boat to a certain extent or the fast speed train, I should say. Again, it goes back to scale. It goes back to leverage. It goes back to being in the driver's seat, not being a passenger. If you're a small independent company and you haven't worked out China at this stage, it's probably late. You just heard from Future Lux author Erwan Ramble. Joining us next is Joyce Stang, a marketer with over 20 years experience in retail. Joyce recently joined Rethink Retail as our chief representative for China. Joyce has also worked with some of the luxury industry's most renowned brands, such as Louis Vuitton, Coach, Bottega Veneta, and Luxottica. If we talk about China market, I think first it's really about the definition of luxury has been changed. I think, especially with the new generation of consumer and also this kind of new technology, which impacts our daily life and not just a technology. It's really about our daily life in China. It's always connected and you cannot leave without a mobile phone, to be honest. So that's make the definition of luxury has been changed because uh, I think so far luxury means, you know, technology. You need to have technology. Of course, you still have also the creativity, but technology is part of the creativity. In terms of the content of luxury, it's not just about the heritage. It's not just about money cannot buy experiences. It's also about how you define cool, how you define fresh, because Chinese consumers really love change. So the easy to be born with something if you don't change. Mm. So I think that's also bring a lot of pressure, kind of positive pressure to luxury brands that need to create something new. 
the concept, the product, and the store design for the selling ceremony of sales. You know how to tell the story. They need to consistently change in this market because uh, given the social media is also booming here, I think there is no overnight news kind of. You know, today maybe you are on the top search results and the tomorrow that will be another one. You will be totally forgot. It's so much to keep up with, it sounds like. I mean, that's a lot of pressure for luxury brands. Yes. And also beside that, I think now Chinese consumer also quite sophisticated. So you also need to ensure the quality given the speed. When you speed up, you also need to guarantee the quality because they are really picking customers. But if you get things right down, you will win the market and you will be the big winner. Right. And you mentioned, you said the Chinese consumer is very sophisticated. They love change. Is this true across generations or do you see differences between some of the younger Chinese consumers who are buying their first luxury product for the first time versus some of the older consumers? I think especially for the new generation of customer, because, you know, if we look at China market about the consumer in China, 50% luxury customers are under 30s. Mm. So they are your half business. Because I remember when I was in Louis Vuitton like almost 10 or 11 years ago, the consumer average age in Louis Vuitton is 32. At that moment, we still think, okay, it's quite young. But now 50% of China luxury customers is under 30. So I think this kind of pressure is getting higher. So you need to fit in the young generation customer and they also the mainstream of your consumer database. And one thing the younger generation seems to be pushing ahead, especially in China, is live streaming. Do you see a lot of live streaming happening within luxury too? Yeah, I think live streaming is really phenomenal in China because the platform is pushing. I have to say Alibaba and Kuaishou. If you heard about Kuaishou, it's also a kind of very popular apps in China. Mm -hmm. And also Douyin, TikTok, Chinese TikTok. Right. So these three major apps, the major e-commerce apps, they are pushing for this kind of channel. So that makes live streaming is quite phenomenal in China, especially for mass market. Because so far, I think the live streaming, if for commercial-wise, it's still like a price war. So people looking for really good price with this kind of live streaming host. But if we specifically talk about how live streaming impact luxury, luxury brands, I think so far, because, you know, like we talk about so far, it's really the young customer buying luxury and the young customer also spend a certain time with this kind of social media. It's a mainstream. So I think a luxury brand, they have to step into live streaming, but different brands, they have different objective in terms of live streaming because live streaming for me, I think it's still just a tool. So how to use this tool can be decided by different brand. So we can see some brand just leverage live streaming to deliver the creative content, to deliver the like fashion show because so far, even in China, in Q2, and the Q3, there's still no offline fashion show except the Louis Vuitton, right? So live show is still a good connect channels 
with young consumer to communicate to you creative content. So you can see like Prada or Bottega Vendita, they just use live streaming to deliver some creative content. Mm. But also some brand that they are trying to leverage live streaming to do sales like Louis Vuitton. They use Red, Xiaohongshu and other apps very popular in China too. So they use Xiaohongshu to do live show to sell product in the store, but it gets a lot of negative comments because people think it's not high quality it's, it looks very cheap. So I think so far, Louis Vuitton didn't do the second time. Oh, interesting. So people actually were not a fan of Louis Vuitton live streaming the products? Yes, especially because I think that event, it's not well prepared. They have a kind of KOL to host the live show and also to do the live show in their boutique in the store. But it totally looked like it sells some cheap product. So it's not well prepared. It's not sufficient. Away. So I think of a luxury brand that they can use live streaming, but they also need to deliver the high expectation. They need to understand the high expectation from consumer. So they still need to make sure it will be a kind of wow experience, not just right. a sale product, because that's a disaster. And also some brand that the live streaming, the super hot live streaming host to increase their brand awareness or their hottest product. Like BV, I think BV, Bottega Veneta, they worked with number one live show host called Li Jiaqi. This guy is super amazing. He can sell like uh, two or three billion RMB in one year. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. But I think this year he will double. He can sell like a five billion RMB. Another one, even we have another super KOL of live streaming to sell products. She so far she already sell 10 billion RMB. Can you believe that? That's amazing. Would you say it's better for creative versus selling for when it comes to the top luxury, when it comes to BV, when it comes to LVMH? True. I think so. So it's better to through the live show to tell your brand story or to deliver your creative content like what Prada or Dior has been done, I think that's quite good. You still need to educate, you know, through this channel, you can do more customer, new customer education. It's not for you to sell because think about one live show, especially for the top KOL, one live show, they can have like 10 million viewers. So how can you put your product in that kind of mass market? It would sell out very quickly, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. but the fact is for live streaming, it's really still the people buy products through live streaming. It's still to, you know, lower average ticket. It's really high discount rate. That makes sense. Would you say you mentioned that fashion shows even in Q1, Q2 of 2020 were online? Do you think the future fashion shows will be a mix of online or only online? Or do you think that was just because of the pandemic and moving forward, they will be in person still? For China, I think digital channel is super important. It's significant. So even we have offline fashion show, I think all the brands in China, they still will leverage digital platform to do live streaming, to create some format of live show can also fit in both offline VIPs, but also online broadcasting. So I think they were together. And is the online broadcasting, does that have a sense of exclusivity as well? Or is that typically open for anyone? I think it will be open for anyone because you already get exclusivity for your offline participants. So yep. online will be really, you know, open to public 
to really to get to the quantity. <laughs> Absolutely. Joyce, I have a question for you because I was talking with someone else and he said, you know, if you're not a large luxury brand already in China, it's too late. You need to be there now and you need to be there in a big way. Would you agree with that? Um, I'm not quite agreeing with that because I think if you haven't been in China, you don't need to go rush because any time is a good time because mm. the market is strong. So as long as you prepared, as long as you understand the, how to fit your brand culture, how to fit your product into this market, any time is good. It's never too late for me. Because I'm quite an optimistic person. <laughs> <laughs> that is optimistic. And I think I would like to ask from your perspective, you said you have to fit your culture to enter the market in a good way. What would advice would you give to some Western retailers about entering the APAC region when it comes to luxury or innovation even? I think first, they really need to understand the consumer demographically because uh, so far, like what we mentioned, the China market is quite different. It's, it's younger, right? The consumer is so much younger and also the digital impact is super strong for either branding or you know for sales you do need to have a very strong sense of digital because that's a fact in this market you also need to understand that the localization is very important now for chinese consumer given you know we call the china pride so you really need to make sure you understand that the chinese consumer you understand how to talk about your product with the language they understood or they love to hear. And also when you step into this market, you cannot just copy paste to your uh, global content. You really need to have some mix with some tailor-made local content, work with these local partners with local KOLs and understand the local lifestyle. And then you can, because I think the young consumer, they really want to see, okay, you are not just come to the market to make money. And you also respect the culture, respect the lifestyle, that you understand this market. Mm -hmm. So it goes deeper than just, hey, we're, we're entering to sell you things. The customer wants to see that you get them digitally, you're offering what they're expecting, and that you also care about the local market and local suppliers and things like that. Yes. And also, it's very significant to find the right local partners as well. Because mm -hmm. so far, you know, there are so many. Yeah, it's a very good market. It's a very energetic market, but also a little bit of chaos as well. So you need to find <laughs> the right partner. You need to be very smart. Otherwise, you just pay the learning cost. What about advertising? You mentioned that the Chinese consumer wants the newest and hottest products. And Erwan mentioned earlier that it's now or never for Western brands and China. So how do these brands get the word out? That's true because I think the digital platform or the digital ecosystem in China is quite comprehensive. So it's not like Facebook or Twitter in overseas market in China, either Tmall or WeChat. Actually, they have quite a functional ecosystem for luxury brands. So start from your creative content exposure to consumer engagement or to sales channel, sales convenience, logistic, and the back to and then how to managing your brand private traffic. This kind of ecosystem is super mature in China now. So I think when luxury brand they want to have successful business in China, they do need to understand not just the one action, actually they need to have comprehensive actions to cover this kind of consumer journey through mm -hmm. this platform. 
And I believe all the luxury brands, they invest a lot in China digital platform because as an individual, myself experience, I use the social media when I see the WeChat article. I always can see a lot of luxury advertising. So, and also they have a lot of KOL collaboration, they have a lot of consumer engagement kind of thing. So I think they have to move fast and they need to do more. Absolutely. Well, that was amazing to hear from you. Is there anything that you would say you're most excited about in luxury over the next few years as we look ahead and wrap up this interview on a really positive note? For me, I think how luxury can really empowered by technology. I'm quite interested to see how the luxury brand, the leverage technology, the leverage digital to create more amazing content and to find the new connection with the consumer. Because I think uh, in terms of products, that's not quite interesting, but it's really about how luxury brands do the brand communication, they do the business through digital channels to fit in digital ecosystem. I think that's a big challenge for all the brands. You just heard from Joyce Stang, Rethink Retail's representative for China. Today's last interview is with our guest, Matteo De Rosa. Matteo formerly led Dries van Noten as its chief executive officer. Born in Europe, Matteo has overseen the expansion of several European brands into the APAC region, specifically China. We spoke with Matteo a few weeks ago while he was quarantining in his home in Hong Kong following a trip to Milan. Let's hear what he had to say about the new Chinese luxury shopper and the cultural factors that make entering this market so unique. So when you talk about luxury market in China, it's a huge topic. As you say, China is a really a complex social and cultural environment. I always define it in a, in a funny way, like Italy in steroids. You know, in Italy, we have different regions, different cities, different even culture and, and dialects or languages. And China is a, exactly kind of that replica, but really in a big scale. So a China difference in regions, in dialects, different in features of the people. You know, some part of the country is very tall and it's very cold. In some parts of the country, they're very short and it's very, it's very, it's very, very warm. So the overall trend is that China is categorized in, in tier cities and uh, in tiers of consumers. First, second tier cities are the most development one, and the third, fourth, and so on are the least development one on the trend to become or to go leading to the first. And so the consumption of luxury differs in those kind of tier cities. What we generally focus on is always the first and second tier cities where there is a consumption that is similar through all. And the trends, luxury, Chinese luxury consumer is sophisticated now, very sophisticated, and can be assimilated to what we used to consider Japanese or, or Korean. It's very interested. So it's hungry for information, it's hungry to know the history of a brand, it's hungry to know how the product is made, it's hungry to know what's behind the curtain. It's hyper-demanding, spoiled, incredibly spoiled, and is looking for uniqueness. Uniqueness is kind of the key of the conversation because uh, uniqueness for this generation of consumer is a combined history, it combines product design, it combines how the storyteller or how the storytelling is uh, perceived by them and how this storytelling is adapted or translated to appeal to the consumer and the consumer experience. All to this, the trends 
that we can forecast are or the interest on these are always accessories, beauties, beauty products, on designers, which is a new kind of e-commerce where they are interested in their own national brands. And throughout, the common denominator of this is a, a young consumer, a new generation that in our in European or American society is not that predominant, but in Asia it is. The average age of a consumer is much, much, much younger than us. And for that reason, they are very hungry and they're very interested in what's going on. They're very interested also in a sustainable aspect and how the product is made. You and our other guests today have all noted that the average age of the Chinese luxury consumer is younger than in the West. Can you explain a little bit about why that is and the significance it plays? Well, it's because it's a much younger population, you know, and also it comes with the development of the country. This country had the first generation building the level of wealth that they are now. The one uh, child policy created a very wealthy base of Gen Z and Gen X. And this generation, who as only child, had all the wealth in their possession for all different parts of the family converging to them as the education, as the monetary spending. And they want to live, or they saw as an example, our way of living, and they want to replicate it in their own way, in their own codes. Differently from other regions, though, the Chinese core part and their values are preserved, and they just need a translation of this into their own life. So the interest in, um, you know, in casual wear, in luxury streetwear, it comes because it's a generational part. You know, they're not, uh, when we talk about luxury consumption, usually in the West, we always assume it with a, a bit of a stuffy, or more, let's say, hardcore and uh, older generational level. Here, no. Here, it's uh, what we know of that is that how we translate it to appeal to a younger generation. And we see, you know, all these trends with V or uh, Gucci or uh, even uh, lately, Zenia with Fear of God, trying to modernize and translate those level of manufacture and values that they bring together for a new generation and to appeal and, and speak to the core of this new generation. Also, there is one other aspect that most of people underestimate. When a young guy is born here, it's baby, it's a toddler. The first gift that you receive is a red envelope with money inside. And this is the best gift they can give. And this red envelope is a constant part of their life throughout the become adulthood. In a, this gives you a very clear idea, in my opinion, to how their values are built. So if there is this uh, top value for gold, it means that with that money that they receive, is that money that is allowing them to buy and purchase all the goods in their life. So they value a lot money and wealth accumulation and what they can do with that money. Compared to us that you know, a new baby is born, we, we give them, uh, I don't know, a little animal or a little, uh, I don't know, toy or little things. There is not that immediate connection. In China, there is this immediate connection and it's eradicated in their culture from the very first beginning. That is so fascinating. And as a European who entered this market, are there other cultural factors that Westerners should be aware of when attempting to expand into the Chinese market? I think one of the things that a European luxury player or any European player should consider when they attempt to enter the Chinese market is to low down or completely erase their prejudice 
and completely open their mind for some tools that they might need to use that they do not resonate with our society. So when we talk about innovation or when we talk about how to reach the, the consumer, there is really a set of proper tools that here they use and they resonate a lot with the Gen Z, with the Gen X and uh, with consumer in general that we would never even consider using in our market because they would be considered other too elevated or too downgraded for the brand. So have a clear, clean mind when you enter, try your approach, be uh, really yourself in the way of enhance your history, enhance your culture, but not in a classic way, not in a way that, uh, okay, I did this for years, I did that, this is my problem, etc. No. Try to incorporate all those values in a communication that appeals to the consumer, sticking really in the understanding of the consumer and, and uh, really trying to focus all your effort in communicating with these consumers, which are, again, younger and very interested and very spoiled are the key of entering the region. There are um, a number of online events in China through which single day is the most prominent, but there are also minor minor days. But it's all about that piece of the, the culture that uh, we were saying before. The Chinese love a bargain. Chinese love to negotiate on prices and uh, they love to again, uh, shop online. So this day was created to reward yourself if you are a single, 11-11, and uh, because one is the number of singularity. So this is one of the cultural pieces that I was telling before. And do not discriminate when you enter the Chinese market on some occasions, some appointments that it might not resonate with our uh, Western societies. We see usually sales or we see usually online uh, as uh, not the enemy, but quite so. Here it is a tool in order to really enter and connect with the consumer with either a different range of product or some promotion on some level. It's a way, see it as a way of connecting with the wider consumer that also maybe sometimes will not be able to purchase your brand, but it will start to connect for the moment when he will be able actually to purchase all the other range. Aside 11.11, the tools that I was saying before, there are online video sales with the ambassador or a celebrity selling your products live online. This is done enormously now. Things that we will never consider for our market here are all legitimate and they actually are very beneficial for the brand health because they connect, they reach, they allow you to tell your story and to make it make the consumer understand what you are and what you stand for. I think the learnings that we can come or that we can take are how to use this tool in order to communicate and educate a generation of consumer to our products to really appeal and create a desire for our products, a curiosity into our brands, a curiosity into our lifestyle, and mostly also maybe rejuvenate our way of thinking, our way of proposing our products to the market. It's really, really important my way to talk to this different kind of generation with the tools that they're familiar with, 
without any kind of uh, mental block, but actually being smart and use it in the best way possible. On today's episode, we heard from Future Lux author Erwan Rambeau, Matteo De Rosa, former president of Dries Van Noten, and Joyce Gang, Rethink Retail's representative for China, about the promising future of China and the rest of the APAC region's burgeoning luxury market. Join us next time as we explore what the future of frictionless means in our final episode on connected experiences. Rethink Retail Luxury was brought to you by Rethink Retail in collaboration with Valtech. Hosted by Julia Raymond Hare, written and produced by Gabriella Bach, edited by Trenton Waller, social media and marketing by Natalie Arana.